Hi everybody, Jimmy DeYoung, and welcome to Prophecy Today. I'm going to ask you again, if you'll give me 90 minutes, I'm going to give you the world. My broadcast partners are standing by in different sections of this world, all over the world, and they are going to, from that location, give me insight about current events Um, Breaking news, in fact, and we're going to talk about what came as a breaking news alert to me on Friday afternoon while I was actually on the air. I was being interviewed by a talk show host that we do every Friday, Middle East News Update, and the Fox News alert came on. And in fact, at the same time, the talk show host had received that same Fox News alert, and I just was talking with Ken Timmerman before we came on the air. He said, hey, I got that at the same time, yeah. Yesterday on Friday. So we're going to be talking about that in the moment with Ken Timmerman. Also standing by David Dolan, the Middle East News Update. Winky Madad is going to respond to what two Israeli ministers, uh, they're part of the cabinet for the Netanyahu government, saying let's retake the Gaza because of what happened earlier this week. Itamar Marcus, he covers the Palestinian media, both electronic and print media. He's going to tell us what's behind all of this activity in the Gaza Strip. John Rood with our European Union update. And David James, taught at our School of Prophets, Understanding Islam, going to ask him to give a review so you can basically get about 10 hours of study in about 20 minutes as we have that conversation with David James. It's all here on Prophecy Today. So glad you could join us. Stay with us for 90 minutes now. We'll give you all the details behind what I have introduced to you at the front of the broadcast. As I said, we'll go to Ken Temmerman. He's on the Catbird seat in Washington, D.C. He covers geopolitical activities for us. And Ken, let's talk about the White House announced that North Korean summit with the United States, Kim and Trump together in Singapore. It's on now, June 12. It's back on schedule. What are your thoughts? Well, on again, off again, on again. It does look like it's going to happen. But the president himself in recent days has been downplaying expectations. He's said on television that everything will not be resolved in one meeting. Uh, It might be two meetings, it might be three, it might be more. But the goal is a scheduled and verifiable total denuclearization of North Korea. And we'll have to see what the North Koreans are demanding in exchange, because I would be shocked if they were going to give up a serious nuclear weapons program, perhaps as many as 30 nuclear warheads, in exchange for nothing. President Trump has been hinting that we would give some kind of security guarantees to Kim Jong-un and his regime, that we would make them rich, or at least make them prosperous, or at least give them the opportunity to make themselves prosperous, should they be able to. So, as the Zen master says, Jimmy... We'll see. We'll see. I love that. You are a wordsmith if I've ever heard one. Well, let me factor in this. Uh, The foreign minister of Russia came in to meet with Kim there in North Korea this week. Kim has already met with the president, the lifelong president of China. And in fact, Vladimir Putin invited Kim to come to Moscow. Is that going to throw a a wrench in, in the whole situation? Uh, It could indeed. That's why I say we'll see. Keep a very close eye on what the Russians and the Chinese are doing. The Russians uh, were beginning to feel left out. And I think you're going to see the Russians do what they do very best in the world, which is to interject themselves and other people's successful diplomacy to make it go sour. I don't know exactly what the Russians will do, 
but my expectation is they will do their best to make this as unsuccessful and unproductive a summit as possible. Yeah, that's most likely the case. Let's change our focus just for a moment. We have, over the last couple of weeks, been talking about the election for prime minister there in Iraq. We've noted that Miktada Sadar, a high-ranking cleric who cannot be involved as taking over the prime minister's office there in Iraq, he did not run for that position, but he is the king maker as it relates to who will be the next prime minister of Iraq. Howbeit, voices from the Arab press are talking about what's happening and, uh, in fact, what's going to take place between the Iraqis and how it's all going to play out. Any insight you may have for us at this time? Well, uh, Jimmy, we've learned over the past week that Muqtada Sadr is intending to name as prime minister the former head of the Badr Corps. This is the Iranian-led, Iranian-financed and trained militia group that uh, had opposed Saddam Hussein and is still active inside Iraq. So that's not a very good piece of news. People had been thinking before, and I think I voiced this uh, last week, if not the week before, that Muqtada Sadr does have a reputation, at least, for being somebody who values Iraqi independence. This nomination of the leader of the Badr Corps does not bode well for Iraq's independence. Yeah, and that's what I thought I remembered you saying. He's supposed to be anti-Iran. This looks like he's pretty much in lockstep with Iran, does it not? It, it makes it appear that way. And remember, he, he did go to Iran uh, a couple of years ago to, uh, in quote, perfect his religious training. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was there at a Shiite theological seminary in Homs. Uh, he went to escape jail in Iraq, but uh, nevertheless, he did, I suppose, attend a couple of classes. Uh, but it also appears that he solidified his political uh, alliances with the Iranian leadership. And that's, that's really bad news for Iraq. It's bad news for Iraq's neighbors. Uh, it's bad news for Syria, because it suggests that uh, he, he will not work to close the land bridge between Iran, Syria, and Israel through Lebanon, uh, but we'll keep it open. So all these things we need to keep our eyes on, they're not good news for any of the people or the countries that we care about. Ken, this week, uh, the secretary, they call him the Minister of Defense. We would refer to him here in America as the Secretary of Defense, Avigdor Lieberman, who is of Russian background. He immigrated from Russia to Israel. He was invited by Vladimir Putin and the leadership of the military operation there in Russia to come to Moscow to meet with that leadership, the two military leaderships together, to see what uh, Russia could provide for the Israelis as it relates to the Iranians uh, and what's happening there in Syria and them setting up right there about two and a half miles from the Israeli northern border in Kenetra, a base in which they could launch an attack especially against the Golden Heights, to try to take that back. Bashar Assad, president of Syria, wants to do that. And uh, so I was talking on this program. I told you I was on a talk show, national talk show, just before we got on the air. 
And uh, somebody called in, was asking me about that, and he said, you know, I think I know what the answer is. And I thought the guy was right to the point, right on target. Man, he said, I think that uh, Russia is trying to do what they can to protect the Syrians from the Israelis, because the Israelis might go in there and wipe Syria off the map. And that can't happen according to the prophetic scenario in God's word. But what are your thoughts? Do you think Russia's on Israel's side or the Syrian side? Well, I think Russia is trying to protect Syria a bit, uh, the Syrian regime. They are Russia's primary ally, don't forget, in Syria. Iran is an ancillary ally, and it is perfectly normal for Lieberman, the defense minister of Israel, to go to Russia. Don't forget, Netanyahu was there just two weeks ago, hours before Israel launched its airstrikes against Iranian bases inside Syria in early May. So the Russians, I think, are trying to put a damper on uh, Iran's involvement, their aggressivity, their, uh, um, their attacks on Israel. I think the Russians are trying to give some space to Israel and to give them some reassurance that they're not going to be facing Iranian Revolutionary Guards Corps troops and Hezbollah fanatics on their immediate border, and that the Syrians will return to the positions that they have historically held up to the ceasefire line above Kunetra or, or just just beyond Kunetra. I don't see Syria using that to launch an attack against Israel. They never have since the initial ceasefire in 1973. So uh, I, I don't see a real risk of Syrian aggression. I do see a Russian attempt to uh, put some space, if you wish, a DMZ, a demilitarized zone between Israel and and Iran in Syria. Yeah, absolutely. And proof of that, of course, is the report that half of Syria's air defense system was destroyed by Israel within the last couple of days and or weeks. And so I think Israel's pretty well prepared to take care of themselves, but it's an interesting mix, all the personalities and the nations we talk about when you think about the prophetic scenario found in God's Word. I never get over being happy that Nikki Haley is our representative, the ambassador to the United Nations. The other day she stood up in the United Nations Security Council because we were discussing what was going on between Hamas and Islamic Jihad there in the Gaza Strip firing over into Israel. And she said, hey, why won't you members stand up and condemn what's going on with Hamas and Islamic Jihad in Israel? United Nations, really a, a little puppy tiger or something, right? It's a disgraceful institution where you have nations that despise America spend their lives uh, denigrating, vilifying Israel and teaming up with Israel's enemies, raising their hands in the council chamber to pass resolution uh, after resolution to condemn Israel. It's about time we had a U.S. permanent representative, as we did with John Bolton in 2005 and 2006, who stands up for the United States, who stands up for U.S. interests, who puts America first, and who recognizes that America's chief ally in the Middle East today, Israel, is under attack, and, and nobody else is going to stand up for her. Not the French, not the Germans, not the Brits, only us. And we need to lead the way. She's been doing that. I say hats off. Let's keep praying for her. First Timothy chapter 2 says, Pray for those who are in higher authority. That would be governmental leaders. You do that, my dear friend. And we'll continue to talk with Ken Timmerman about the current events unfolding in our world 
seemingly setting the stage for Bible prophecy to be fulfilled. Ken, great conversation. Thank you for the insight, buddy. We'll talk again next week. Always my pleasure, Jimmy. God bless. We're going to take a break. When we come back, David Dolan standing by. He's got a Middle East news update for us right here on Prophecy Today. How do you like your news? You know, Jimmy, folks are listening to the news every single day, but sometimes they're getting that liberal bent, and we want them to have a different look at the news. Jay, that's correct. I have listened to ABC, CBS, and NBC when I returned from Jerusalem back to the United States, having just witnessed a news event in the Middle East, and hear the commentators over here speaking something almost different. That's why I write the Until Newsletter, and it takes the leading news stories of the month. I give the absolute truth behind all the details in those headlines, and then we look at it from a prophetic perspective. I want to give you the insight from God's Word as to how the political is setting the stage for the prophetic to be fulfilled. And Jay's going to give you the phone number how you can get your free copy of Until the Prophecy Newsletter. Just give us a call at 8-PROPHECY-8. That's 877-674-3298. In today's world, a biblical worldview and a proper understanding of biblical prophecy should be a priority. At a time when many false doctrines are entering the church at a frightening pace, we must be able to rightly divide God's Word in order to live a pure and productive life for Him. If you would like an in-depth understanding of biblical prophecy, let me challenge you to consider Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's School of Prophets. The School of Prophets is an online study for the layman or student pursuing a master's or doctorate degree. Dr. DeYoung's online study program will allow you to develop a timeline of biblical prophecies of the past as well as future prophecies yet to be fulfilled. Your personal study of God's Word will only be enhanced by Dr. DeYoung's School of Prophets and your life will be changed as you better understand, like Daniel, where you fit into God's calendar of events. If you're interested in developing a deeper understanding of God's prophetic Word, let me personally invite you to become involved in Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's School of Prophets. Call today at 8-PROPHECY-8. That's 877-674-3298. Or visit us at schoolofprophets.org. Welcome back to Prophecy Today, everybody. I'm Jimmy DeYoung. I'm here at Broadcast Central. We've been here all week with our School of Prophets, and we've had a great time. We're going to now look at the Middle East News update given to us by a man who's a longtime journalist over 35 years in the Middle East as a journalist, a man very knowledgeable of what's happening in that very important region of the world, and we're so grateful for David Dolan to be able to join us each and every week with his Middle East News update. David, thank you for coming. Let's get right into the situation which exploded me, and I don't mean any pun by that, but literally, I think about 90 different mortars were fired from out of the Gaza Strip into Israel proper itself. Uh, The Israeli Defense Force went after a number of targets, not just a couple, but a number of targets in the Gaza Strip. Give us an update, if you will, buddy. Well, Jimmy, indeed, it was uh, started by the Islamic Jihad group, which is directly under the control of Iran. The Hamas group that controls the Gaza Strip is also, of course, allied with Iran and receives weapons and money from them. But they retain a certain distance, whereas Islamic Jihad, a smaller group, went to Iran's side many years ago and has been very close to them. The Israelis believe that this was ordered by Tehran, that they wanted to cause a diversion, Jimmy, in the south, 
well, quite a diversion, as you said. In fact, it was over a hundred, they're now saying, mortars and rockets that were fired into Israeli territory. The Iron Dome system took out most of those, but as I noted last week, it costs about $100,000 every time that's fired. It's a very expensive system. So Israel's spending money to defend its towns and cities, but by that action, they prevented any of the rockets from actually killing anyone, although, uh, as was reported in the international news, one hit a school just a half hour before the students were due to arrive in it. Had it been an hour later, obviously, there would have probably been casualties and uh, an even worse Israeli, or stronger, I should say, Israeli response. But it went on all day Tuesday, and then it calmed down, and Wednesday morning things were fairly calm. On Friday, there were again riots down in the Gaza Strip. Two Palestinians were shot. They were sending again the incendiary kites into Israeli territory. And by the way, Jimmy, the government said on Friday in Israel that uh, thousands of acres have burned of forest and fields in the area where these incendiary kites are landing and setting fires. Of course, it's the Middle East. It's already the dry season from April till October. There's no rain, so the forests are already dry and ready to burn. And uh, that protest on Friday, by the way, was called from Gaza to Haifa. They said they would march up to Haifa. Well, of course, that didn't happen. But in Haifa, in the north of Israel, there was a demonstration of uh, Arabs up there and their supporters supporting the Gaza action. But it was thought to be a diversion, Jimmy, and I'll talk about that next. I can hardly wait to understand what it was a diversion for. I've got questions, but since you said you'd talk about it next, what are you referring to? Well, Israeli reports, there's some of them are ones that I'm getting directly myself, but it's been in some of the media over there, is that it looks like an attack is being planned by Iran in the uh, Golan area, and there's been reports over the past few days of a buildup of forces there, mostly Hezbollah forces, the Israelis are saying, although they are wearing Syrian army uniforms. Now, that came after the Russian Foreign Minister Lavrov basically agreed with Israel that there is no reason for Iranian or Hezbollah forces to be stationed right in the south of Syria. If they're there to fight the uh, battle for the Assad regime against its opponents, well, there are some opponents still down there, but the Russians agreed that the Syrians themselves should take care of that, that there should be no Iranians there. Well, indeed, the Iranians are still there, according to these reports, and Hezbollah's beefing up its forces, preparing apparently to try to force out of the town of Kenetra some rebel forces that are still there. Well, this is right on the Golan border, Jimmy. You know that. You've been up there. You've seen how close that uh, abandoned town is in the no-man zone, basically, between the Golan Heights and Syria. And the indications are that they're preparing for a major uh, battle there. Well, of course, that could easily involve Israel or spill over into Israel, or the worry is be turned into an offensive against Israel. And, Jimmy, this comes as a Revolutionary Guard official this week claimed, and it's a false claim, I can say, but claimed that the rockets they fired into the Golan earlier in April uh, did much more damage than the Israelis are admitting, and that it really did some harm to Israel. All my reports, everything I've seen, that's false. The Israelis, again, with their anti-missile systems, took out the four rockets that were aimed at military bases. As you noted uh, at the time, most of the rockets landed short of Israeli territory. They landed in Syria itself. 
but uh, we now know that over 30 were fired at Israel, and the Israelis are worried that this could turn into not just an offensive against the remaining opponents of the Assad regime in the Golan area, but that they could launch an attack into Israel, and obviously they did that two months ago. And this comment by Lavrov, Jimmy, is critical, because the Russians, as I mentioned a couple weeks ago, they are starting to put pressure on the Assad regime to curb Iran and Hezbollah. And that is, of course, under Israeli uh, pressure on Russia to do that. And, in fact, Defense Minister Lieberman is in Moscow having urgent meetings to discuss the situation. And, again, the Israelis, as uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu said on Wednesday, are saying no Iranian presence in Iran. We will not tolerate any Iranian bases. Hezbollah, that's a Lebanese group. We don't like them at all, but they've got to get out of Syria as well. The war is ending, and we're going to insist upon this, the Israelis are saying, or we will take military action. So it's a very hot situation up there around the Golan Heights. Got to tell you, folks, not only is David Dolan an excellent journalist, he's a mind reader. Because if you could see my notepad right here in my hand, behind this microphone, the next question for David Dolan was, what about the Iranians and the Syrians moving towards Kenetra to set up their base to go into the Golan Heights? Well, David, thank you for reading my mind and answering the next question. How about this? There was a report this week by a former head of Mossad that back in 2011, Prime Minister Netanyahu ordered a two-week Iranian attack plan. In other words, the preparations were to be made, and within two weeks they would do a preemptive attack on Iran. I know that was 2011, and that was some seven years ago, but uh, I would say that he's probably as prepared to do that this time, if indeed they need to, to deal with the Iranians. Would you not say that is the case? I would say that's the case, Jimmy. And indeed, I was in Jerusalem at the time in 2011. We had reports coming in to our office there and some others that there was, in fact, an Iranian attack being planned, an attack upon Iran's uh, nuclear forces by Netanyahu. He had made some public statements, frankly, to that effect as well. And, Jimmy, uh, the Mossad chief who revealed it also said that he uh, questioned it. And uh, is this legal? And, uh, you know, we're going to start a war here. Could I be prosecuted later on for taking part in this? So he was uh, holding it back. But, Jimmy, the attitude in Jerusalem at the time was to hold back. And why was that? Because of a man named Barack Hussein Obama, who was president of the United States, of course, at the time, who was encouraging at the time the Arab Spring, as they were calling it, this revolt that, of course, led to disasters uh, and wars all around the region that are still raging in Syria and Yemen. Egypt, the government, Mubarak government was overthrown. The Muslim Brotherhood came in, and it was a mess. And, of course, the White House was encouraging it at the time. So the Israelis were worried that if they took any action against Iran, they would not have the support of the United States. And that's a critical to have that support, of course, if it escalates into a full-scale war, which it would have likely done. But, Jimmy, I can say this. Had Netanyahu taken that action at the time, despite the opposition from Washington, and at least from the Obama administration in Washington and others, we wouldn't be in the situation we're in today. That would have ended their nuclear program. There would have been no Assad regime. The Assad regime would have been quickly overthrown without Iranian help from the start and Hezbollah's help. 
Hezbollah probably would have been kicked down into a, a non-force also in any war that would have occurred then, and we wouldn't be talking again about Iran going nuclear. So it was the right thing to do at the time, I believe. It was stopped by other Israeli leaders, but they were doing it because... There was a general concern that the White House would not support it. Of course, now we have a different president, a different attitude, the president himself talking about possible military action against Iran, and certainly if they restart their nuclear program, definite military action to curb that, he himself is saying. So the atmosphere is totally different, and we're very likely to see military action at this time, but it's likely to be much worse that it would have been had it taken place in 2011. And you can be absolutely assured of the fact that Prime Minister Netanyahu is ready to go should he need to. If he gets the proper information, he will give that order. David Dolan, the man who covers the Middle East for us, helping us to understand this region, key to understanding Bible prophecy. David, thank you so much, my good friend. We'll talk again next week. Thank you, Jimmy. God bless We're going to take a break, and when we come back, I'm going to have Mike's side with me, Winky Madad, going to be talking about uh, this situation of pulling out of the Gaza Strip if they can't get it under control, taking it back to the Israeli sovereignty. That's all ahead right here on Prophecy Today. Have you ever wanted to know more about God's plan for the future? Have you ever tried to understand prophetic passages in God's Word, like, say, the book of Revelation, and been frustrated at not being able to figure it out? Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's latest CD series, Keys for Unlocking God's Plan for the Future, will help you gain the ability to understand where to start in your study of prophecy and allow you to read God's Word in a new and exciting way. Understanding God's prophetic Word will allow you to live a pure and productive life until Jesus returns for the church. Keys will help you gain the tools you need to understand the end-time events as foretold in God's Word. Dr. DeYoung lays out a systematic approach to Bible prophecy for those who want to know God's plan for the future. Tracks included are A Roadmap Through the End Times, The Jew in Jerusalem, Daniel and the Antichrist, Ezekiel and Messiah's Temple, and Revelation and Babylon. To order your copy of Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's Keys for Unlocking God's Plan for the Future, visit our website at prophecytoday.com. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung right here at Broadcast Central in Chattanooga, Tennessee, trying to get a little bit of rest after our School of Prophets conference this last Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. Amazing what we were able to do as we are reaching across the world, and in fact across the United States in particular, to teach the prophetic Word of God. Started in the book of Genesis and was going through the Bible. Each and every book of the Bible has prophecy in it. We were dealing with that at the conference. Now, this was part one. Part two, at the next conference, the School of Prophets conference, upcoming the second week of December. More about that later. Had a great time. Somebody told me we had 4,000 views on our live streaming. I'm not sure exactly what that means, but it sounds like a lot of people were interested in what we were doing. We'll tell you about how you can view all of the conference. We are now editing everything that we videotaped and put on live streaming, and it will be available. So we'll tell you about that later down the line when we get it all in shape. 
Well, this last week in Israel, it's been a very interesting time. I think there were somewhere between 80 and 90 mortars that were lobbed across out of the Gaza Strip into Israel. Islamic Jihad and Hamas involved in this. More details as we go through the broadcast today. But I wanted to get a hold of Winky Madad. He's one of our favorite broadcast partners, long-time broadcast partner. And he lives in a place called Shiloh, center part of the state. It's in the area of what the Palestinians refer to as the West Bank. But Judea and Samaria, the proper name, and it is one of those Jewish communities often referred to as a Jewish settlement as well. And Winky, I mean, I'm just repeating information that most people already know. I just want to get them on the same page with you and me. And uh, we can talk a little bit about these mortars being lobbed into Israel from the Gaza Strip. But I want to start with this. There are two Israeli cabinet members, two different ministers, who have proposed the idea of taking back the Gaza Strip. Now, you know, that is very concerning as to what you would do with Hamas and everything else that would happen as a result of that. Let's just start from the very beginning. Is it possible that the Israeli government might go along with these two ministers and consider the Israeli Defense Force going in and taking back the Gaza Strip? What are your thoughts? Jimmy, if you uh, really pressed me, I would have to say that knowing Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, knowing his past policies and his characteristics, I hope he would agree with me that I don't think he is that adventurous in his handling of disputes that lead to war or or military hostilities. He's always been very low-keyed. He has been very forthright in the statements, especially against Iran, that we will not tolerate Israel being targeted in any sort of nuclear armament development, or in Syria. But even this, I think, the past two occasions in which he personally was in charge of operations in Gaza, anybody would say he was fairly hesitant and definitely not willing to enter Gaza in a a large fashion. I would hope that the Israeli uh, army has some commando operations, perhaps, in which maybe... Uh, Hamas senior members and leaders could be perhaps abducted. That would be a nice development, but uh, maybe that's wishful thinking on my part. I do not see the Israeli army in large uh, incursion or even invasion in Gaza Strip. It's a much more difficult problem with the large numbers of Arabs. I think we're adequately at the present moment dealing with the situation we see now that uh, after the past uh, couple of days, uh, things stopped. I don't think that's on the board. I think the politicians are simply making uh, a lot of hot air for themselves. Yeah, I'm trying to promote a consideration that may grab some of these who are going to be voting for them the next time they come up for election. Uh, well, just remind everybody that the Gaza Strip, if, if you can, you're a great historian. Tell us about how the Israeli government decided to give the Gaza Strip to the Palestinian people, I think, to appease them with a state of some kind, using the Gaza Strip as that state. But also, the Jewish settlements. Back in 2005, there was a major Jewish settlement that was evacuated. Just uh, go through that history a little bit with us and tell us what has even happened to those who were in that settlement there in the Gaza Strip and have been pulled out, and what are they doing now? Well, let's uh, first make sure that everybody's on the same page. 
Gaza has a long history of Jewish residency, especially in the 16th century. I'm talking about the modern period, not even talking about the biblical period. In the end of the 19th century, up until 1929, there was a small Jewish community in the Gaza Strip. As a result of the pogroms and the riots that the Mufti led at the time, they had to leave. And there was a Jewish kibbutz called Kfar Aza that existed there in the end of the Mandate period and was overrun by the Egyptian forces in 48. So it's not as if Jews sort of popped up in Gaza out of nowhere. But uh, as you're correct, we have to uh, zero in on 2005. Mr. Sharon, for many reasons, some people think in order to uh, avoid a trial, some people think simply because the perceived large number of Arabs in the area were uncontrollable or we would be unable to administer them properly, decided unilaterally to give up the Gaza Strip. Now, in the south, as you mentioned, there was a whole area of about 14 kibbutzim and moshavim in an area called Gush Katif. You don't have to translate it, just a, a geographical name. Some of them had been moved into there from northern Sinai when Menachem Begin had affected a, a withdrawal from the Sinai Peninsula. So some of these people actually had been, uh, by 2005, turned out of their homes twice. That did not placate the Arabs. The Palestinian Authority and PLO were unable to maintain its rule, and the Hamas took over. And since then, as you mentioned, we've had Operation Protective Edge, Operation This, Operation That. Iron Lead, I think, is another one, and it's been very unquiet, including the tunnels. They hit us above ground and below ground as well. Do you think the Israeli government does have a plan as to how to deal with the Gaza Strip and the Palestinian problem there? Uh, The short answer is no. I don't think they have quite a strategic or even a tactical plan how to deal with the situation. I do know that the politicians dealing with the issues are always how can I say it, hesitant to take on the reality of Arab opposition to Jewish residency or presence or anything in the land of Israel in an independent or in a uh, politically free system. Uh, They would like to see us in the old Ottoman Empire or even earlier era when we were a minority, where we had no rights, and we didn't make any claim to, too much claim to ownership. And that's very tough for a Western person. And no matter if he's left, right, up and down, it doesn't seem normal. And unfortunately, that's what we're facing here in, in, in this part of the Middle East. But I have to repeat what I said before. Gaza Strip is very, very unique in that it has a very, very large population in a very small area, which would be very difficult to administer, very difficult to control. And we have to maintain some sort of border until eventually someone... Uh, begins to yield and realize that we're here to stay, and it's in their best interest uh, to make peace with us. Absolutely, but we have read the last chapter. We know exactly what God's going to do for the Jewish people as it relates to the Gaza Strip, don't we? Yes, we do. Of course, we could always rely on Samson and carrying the gates around for a while, but I don't know what we can do today in the same fashion as a biblical hero did.
<laughs> that was a great response, Winky. Well, I've talked about the history of the Gaza Strip, and I wanted Winky to bring that to our attention so you can understand the present and then ultimately the future. If you don't understand the past, you'll never understand the future. Winky, thank you so very much. Great insight, my good friend. Have a great, great weekend. We'll talk to you again real soon. Jimmy, thank you, and thank you for having me on the program. Goodbye to you and our listeners. Right now, we're not going to Israel. That's where we usually go to be able to talk to the director of Palestinian Media Watch. Itamar Marcus is the man who is our broadcast partner, but he just does that as a sideline. His real ministry, his real opportunity to help build the nation of Israel and help the Jewish people is to lead a team that monitors the Palestinian media, the electronic media, the print media, palwatch.org. That's their address on the Internet. You need to go there. In fact, I would bookmark that location and uh, sign up for Itamar to send you the alerts he sends out to keep you aware of actually what the Palestinian media is really saying, not what they're propagating to the world but what they are actually saying. We catch you tomorrow. I said not in Israel. He's in Los Angeles. We're able to talk to him there. Tell us, Itamar, what are you doing out there in California? I mean, you're crazy to go to California. You go out of one war zone to another <laughs> war zone in California. But uh, what are you doing there, and uh, what's your plan for the future while you're in the States? Well, I have some... Uh speaking engagements here, and Monday I'll be speaking in Sacramento at the state legislature to a number of members of the legislature, of the state assembly, so that should be interesting, and it's important that even state legislators get this information. Itamar Marcus, an ambassador at large, as he goes across the country, this time in California, and speaking to legislators there in Sacramento, but he's done that in the European Union, in Washington, D.C., he continues to let the world know really what the Palestinian people are saying. Well, I wanted to contact you, Itamar, to find out what the Palestinian people are saying about the barrage of mortars that were lobbed out of the Gaza Strip over into Israel proper. And I, I just wonder, was this a part of a plan that it just happened? What's the real story, and what are the Palestinians saying about it in the media? Well... I'll tell you, there's what they say in the media. They're saying that it was in response to Israel's response. They they always try to present themselves as victims. So when they tried to uh, send terrorists into Israel across the uh, fence in Gaza. Israel was forced to shoot a large number of them because many of them, uh, almost all of them, in fact, were terrorists. And uh, they then claimed that they were responding to that. Let me just tell you what they were really doing. We have found that the... Both Hamas and Fatah, the Palestinian Authority leadership, whenever they're very low in the polls, they start some kind of conflict with Israel with the knowledge that their population will support them in a conflict with Israel no matter who started it, no matter what the cause, no matter who's responsible. So what Hamas did here was they have been very low in the polls. Uh, Palestinians in the Gaza Strip have been suffering terribly in the last year due to financial cutbacks, due to the poor management by Hamas. And with the people suffering, and with Hamas popularity very low, Hamas decided they had to attack Israel. And I'm telling you that the real reason for this attack was just to gain popularity and to gain prominence amongst 
Palestinian population. It had nothing to do with any of those reasons that they're telling the international community. Well, I know that we talked in the past about the March of Return, a seven-week campaign leading up to the celebration of the 70th birthday of the Jewish State of Israel. Is this an extension of that? Is it a different uh, game plan that they're working with? What is it? Well, the the March of Return, even the, the expression, was really a camouflage for their attempt to create terror against Israel. They were hoping to get few terrorists to get into Israel to commit some kind of a terror attack where Israelis would be killed, where civilians would be killed. And that's why they sent hundreds and even thousands of people all along the Gaza Strip to try to break down the fences and to cut the fences and get into Israel. In fact, a number of them succeeded in cutting the fences. Uh, Some of them actually got into Israel. They were all either caught right away or were killed after they come into Israel. They called it a march of return. Again, even the name was a camouflage. It's a packaging. It's a, the name was a PR stunt. Uh, we want to return what they're, to what they're claiming is their land. Of course, it's not true. Uh, of course, historically, it never was true. But that's the PR plan. And they package terror under nice terms like um, the march of return. Then what happened was they packaged the the martyr the, the the shells that they fired into Israel as a response to Israel killing people during the march of return. So what they've done though, and successfully done, is they've put themselves in the center of the news. Israel has been isolated internationally, and I can tell you some of the comments I'm hearing in the United States and in California from people who are not very informed. They just cannot imagine why Israel killed so many supposedly innocent civilians. Uh, The press has played along, tragically, the press has played along with Hamas, um, has made it seem like Israel just uh, attacked innocent civilians and shot innocent civilians who were doing non-violent demonstrations. So Hamas has succeeded. Both internally they've created popularity for themselves, and internationally they have put Israel in the spotlight as if we are killing civilians. And I'm telling you, I'm hearing that not just from the media, but from uninformed Americans and even uninformed American Jews who are embarrassed about what Israel did in killing civilians. If you look back over the last couple of years, it's the summertime when the conflict intensifies between the Israelis and the Palestinians, and particular Hamas there in the Gaza Strip is what we saw happening. You said it's cooled off, but at the first of the week it was pretty hot. Could this lead ultimately to another of those summer wars between Israel and the Hamas in the Gaza Strip? I don't think so, because Israel's response this time was very different than Israel's response was in previous times. In previous times, Hamas would send a few shells into Israel, and Israel would bomb a few sites. Uh, Hamas would, you know, send 10 in and Israel would bomb a few sites. This time, Israel bombed dozens and dozens and dozens of sites all through the Gaza Strip. Many of the Hamas training camps, many of the Hamas offices, many of the places where they stored their weapons. We bombed another tunnel. The way to deter Hamas is not to uh, respond to one volley with two volleys, but to respond to one volley with 10 or 20 or 30 volleys. And that's what we did. Um, the response was so strong that Hamas realized that uh, Israel was not going to play this game uh, anymore. And apparently in a panic, after one day, through the Egyptian government, Hamas really begged for a ceasefire. And although Israel will not negotiate with Hamas, Israel decided to see, uh, let's see if they will really stop 
uh, stop firing. So it's not an official ceasefire. There never was an official war. But what happened was Israel taught them a very, very important lesson, that there's a different Israel out there right now. We're not going to be concerned what the international community says or what the media says. We're going to do what we have to do, protect our people. If you're going to send a couple of uh, missiles or 10 or 15 or 20 missiles into Israel, we're going to hit you with 100 or more you know, bombings, and, and you're, going to be, you're going to pay a price. So I think that's what happened, and that's why I don't expect we're going to be headed for any kind of a war in the summer. The only thing that could change that picture is if, uh, tragically, uh, God forbid, Hamas succeeds in sending a missile in to Israel, which actually kills uh, some civilians. If that would happen, Israel might respond with incredible force. So that's the scenario that could lead still to, uh, to a more serious conflict. That's the voice of Itamar Marcus. He heads up an organization, Palestinian Media Watch, palwatch.org, their Internet address. Go there, bookmark it. And Edomar, wow, we needed to be updated with the truth behind what has been going on this last week as it relates to the Palestinians. You're the man to go to when we want to have that update. Thank you so very much, Edomar. Have a great visit here in the United States. May it be fruitful for you as you get the truth out. And we'll talk again real soon. Thanks very much. What a valuable service Edomar Marcus and his team, Palestinian Media Watch, offer to not only the Israelis, uh, but the entire world as to what is really being said in the print and electronic media of the Palestinian people. Very valuable information. So grateful for Itamar being available for us right here on Prophecy Today. Well, I'm very grateful that we have a man named John Rood, 30 years, I believe, somewhere in that area, living in Brussels, Belgium, headquarters for the European Union, very knowledgeable, has visited both the Parliament and the EU meetings and has talked with many of those involved in both of these agencies in Europe itself, so has great insight in what is happening there. John, thank you for being available, and let me get underway quickly. Iran is now pressuring the European Union to speed up their plans to save the nuclear deal. Now, is that going to work, or will the European Union drag its feet watching to see what the United States is going to do? What do you think? That's a very good point in terms of dragging feet. The EU keeping the Iran deal really looks bleak. So there is a sort of uh, hesitation to come up with any uh, direct results here. Actually, Iran is asking the EU to produce what the EU cannot give them. And again, here we have this comparison of the U.S. relationship with the EU compared to the EU to Iran. And so since the 2015 deal... EU trade with Iran has tripled. It's gone from $8 billion to $24 billion. There's a big interest there. But then again, the U.S. GDP is 31 times that of Iran. So the difficulties are continuing. Iran will threaten to begin enrichment again, which essentially is a, a blackmail. They want guarantees, but it doesn't appear that there will be a solid deal from this situation. This last week, Prime Minister Netanyahu, Prime Minister of Israel, was to fly into Europe, meet with a number of the European Union leaders. 
on helping them to understand really the threat that Iran is, and if it's a nuclear-powered Iran, what the threat could intensify to actually be, not only on Israel itself, the Jewish state of Israel, but on the European Union as well. Do you have any input from what uh, that conversation might have been between Netanyahu and those European Union leaders? Well, that is the concern from the European Union, the ballistic missiles, because they're within range. Now, President Trump in the United States, they're, they're much more concerned about Iran's role in, in the Middle East, about uh, the nuclear uh, deal enrichment, which expires in 2025. So the ballistic missile situation is very much uh, close to home for the EU. They receive Prime Minister Netanyahu. Uh, he's meeting June 4th with Merkel in Germany, and Macron is June 5th, the next day in France. Um, I'm sure he's accustomed to getting a cold shoulder from European Union hierarchy, but they are working. This is a negotiation. So something could be very productive in this, and it's getting harder and harder to sweep this entire situation under the carpet, considering the discoveries that were made before about Iran's uh, enrichment program. Very interesting thought there, because Prime Minister Netanyahu uh, did give that presentation to the world about uh, their plans of a development of a nuclear weapon of mass destruction. European Union leaders need to recognize that in light of what you brought to our attention, the ballistic missile, which would have a range to hit these European Union states as well. There's been one of the nations that is not in the European Union have been involved in trying to become a member state with them. They've been held at arm's length, and that's Turkey. And uh, they are looking as to Turkey, well, what are they going to do? Will this open the door for the Islamic world to come into the European Union? What kind of threat actually is this almost dictator with absolute power there in Turkey going to be to the European Union? Any insight on Erdogan and the threat he could be to the European Union and, in fact, the world? Uh, Yes, uh, Prime Minister Erdogan has been ratcheting up the confrontation, we could say, And there's a recent meeting with 57 member states, which is the Organization of Islamic Cooperation. And so that was just hosted in Istanbul. It was absolutely filled with inflammatory remarks, a completely anti-Israel platform. So where is this going? Looking down the road, uh, there's been talk if Turkey could actually stay in NATO. 2016, I believe it was, they actually threatened to pull out of NATO. But Erdogan is taking the appointed position of being leader in the Middle East, and yes, he's looking to actually lead an Islamic movement. It's very touchy. The U.S. the Senate this last week in the committee, they actually initiated a move to block the sale of the uh, F-35 Lightning II program. So Turkey had put in for a hundred of these, the most advanced uh, fighter planes the world has ever seen. And uh, the U.S. is actually looking to possibly put a hold on that. So looking down the road, the antagonism that's there, it's actually not just bringing himself into a leadership position in the Islamic world, but it looks that there is going to be an even growing tension between Turkey and NATO. And possibly the fact of Turkey leaving NATO, this this could be a new issue that will come to light. 
to be very, very viable that it would happen, and that could, of course, only mean bad things as far as our world is concerned. One final question for you, John. Uh, Seems like very recently, within the last uh, maybe 48 hours, Italy has formed a brand new government. There was a question about whether one minister in that government would be totally anti-European Union. Looks like they've got that settled. Do you know much about this newly formed government there in Italy? Yes, Italy's had a political crisis. It's certainly not the first one. They've had 64 governments since World War II. But this is the first time that populist movements have come to the forefront. So there actually was a coalition formed between the anti-establishment, the five-star group, and a right-wing league group. And both of them basically would be uh, Eurosceptic. So they've actually chosen, as you said just very recently, Giuseppe Conte, and he will be the head being the new prime minister of Italy. Most of the press will be negative on this in terms that it's a populist movement, but if you look up the definition of populist, it's basically a member that's seeking to represent the interests of ordinary people. So Italy has had a crisis, not the first one. We'll see how this scales, but one of the situations in Italy is the debt situation is out of control. Their debt is 2.3 trillion euros, at 2.7 trillion dollars. So they're the second highest debt in the EU after Greece. So this will be a lot of the cracks with the iron and clay will certainly come from the monetary union, and Italy is setting up for a further crisis in terms of the euro. And of course, that iron and clay referring to the book of Daniel, when we're talking about the the ten toes of iron and clay, representing the revival of the Roman Empire. See how you start with politics and end up with prophecy. Hey, John, thank you so much. You keep us abreast of a very important region of this world and what's happening. It's key for our understanding of how the world is quickly moving to the fulfillment of Bible prophecy. Appreciate it, my good friend. We'll have another talk next week. Thank you very much. We're going to take a break. When we come back, I have one more broadcast partner. He'll come to this broadcast table. It's David James. We're going to be talking about understanding Islam. You don't want to miss that conversation. It's all ahead right here on Prophecy Today. Hi, everybody. Jimmy DeYoung. Welcome back to the last half hour of our 90-minute broadcast prophecy today. Remember at the outset when I was introducing the program, I asked you for 90 minutes. Hope you're still with us in a moment. We're going to have David James, and he'll join me at this broadcast table for our weekly conversation, a focus on understanding Islam. That's going to be a very informative conversation. Keep the dial set right where it is. Before we bring David, though, let me ask you to go to my website, prophecytoday.com. There at the website on the left-hand column of the home page, if you'll scroll down, you'll find my poll question. Please respond to the poll question. We try to get the heartbeat of all of our listeners to understand if we're communicating or not. We need you to fill out and answer our poll question. Now, here's the poll question. 
Do you see the Iranian plan in the Middle East is being unfolded through terrorist groups like Hezbollah, Hamas, and Islamic Jihad? And do you see this as setting the stage for the prophetic scenario that is found in Bible prophecy for Iran? That's the poll question. Love to have you answer it. Please go to my website, prophecytoday.com. On the homepage, left-hand column, that's where you'll find it. We're now bringing to these microphones David James, and he's at the microphone. Actually, we catch him on the road going back home from our School of Prophets conference in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Had a great conference, three days, power-packed with prophetic information. David gave us a look at the understanding of Islam, and I started the first of a three-part series on prophecy through every book of the entire Bible. I got a great response to both of the courses, and we've got some plans for the future. The next conference upcoming is going to be December, the second week of December, December 11, 12, and 13. Put it down on your calendar. And I want, I want to tell you, I don't know what this means. I am a neophyte when it comes to technology. Uh, but uh, somebody told us we had about 4,000 views in our live streaming operation that we had with uh, the conference itself. Sounds exciting to me, like a lot of people must have maybe dropped by, maybe stayed a while, we don't know. But uh, we praise the Lord for the opportunity we had. Now, David, we've just finished this conference. As you well know, you're trying to rest up as you try to drive home and do some real rest before you take off again. And since you prepared and taught the course Understanding Islam for the very first time, I thought it might be interesting and helpful for our listeners if you could just give us a sort of an overview of some of the things that you covered. Yeah, I think it'd be uh, great for our listeners, you know, uh, from time to time, depending on current geopolitical events and things happening in our segment each week where we discuss current theological issues. The subject of Islam has come up. It was great to lay even a, a better foundation, not only concerning Islam, but connections between uh, Islam and, and the Bible, and we'll get into that in a little bit, just to have a broader understanding as we go deeper into the last days. Some of the things that are still ahead is prophesied in the scriptures and understanding how to put that together correctly, especially as uh, regards to Islam. Now, all 10 sessions that David had in this teaching, Understanding Islam, are on video. They've been recorded. We're going to post them on our website. You'll be able to go to prophecytoday.com and watch all 10 sessions. We'll have it on audio as well. We'll tell you how you can get that. But I'm, I'm guaranteeing you, if, if you did not view it on live streaming video or you were not at the conference, you need to get this because it will be very important for you. David, let's first talk about the beginnings of Islam and remind us how and when did Islam actually begin. Well, as most people know, a man named Muhammad was born in AD 570 in the area of Mecca, and that was largely a Bedouin tribal region at the time, certainly not the built-up uh, metropolitan area that it is now. When he was 40 years old, he supposedly, according to Islamic tradition, he supposedly began receiving revelations from God uh, directly through the archangel Gabriel, who is said to have appeared to him as a man, 
And depending on the Islamic tradition, the Quran was in the mind of God from all eternity, co- coexisted, and God communicated that directly to the prophet Muhammad. And it's over a period of uh, 23 years until his death in 632. And because he was illiterate, he actually is said to have memorized everything that God told him over this 23-year period. And Muslims believe that this is one of the greatest miracles of Islam, that he was able to memorize that and communicate that, made up of 114 chapters, uh, ranged from longest to shortest. And then it developed as his companions and followers. He gained a following over the next several years, and it rapidly developed into a, what became a regional and now a worldwide religion. Now, you're mentioning the name God. You're not talking about the God of the Bible, are you? Absolutely not. Yahweh and the Bible and the characteristics that define the Yahweh of the Bible that we understand that is the personal name of God, that is different than Allah, even though there are actually a couple of uh, Arabic words for God, and even some uh, born-again Christians in the Middle East who speak Arabic would refer to the God of the Bible as Allah, but in terms of their characteristics and who they are, they are two completely different identities because the Quran says that God has no son, and we certainly believe that the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, is God become a man, and he is the Son of God. Yes, amen. Well, it's an interesting thought you brought out, though, uh, that Muhammad was illiterate. I, <laughs> and uh, that just helps me to question the fact, uh, if that's how the Quran was compiled through Muhammad, he was illiterate. How has it actually been preserved over the centuries? Well, he recited what he had supposedly been hearing, and I'll make this comment as well. It's possible that some personality appeared to Muhammad, but it certainly wasn't the archangel Gabriel. Mm. It could have been a demonic. I wouldn't uh, dismiss that idea, but it was the traditions that he recited to his companions and followers. Uh, they began compiling it. One of his closest companions began compiling it in around 650. The problem was, by that time, there were already several different traditions, and uh, this follower is said to have burned all copies except for one. So we don't know what the, the original was. We don't have the original, and actually as going through the centuries, there are several different traditions, uh, and even Islamic scholars don't agree on everything, and there's another important part about this that helps us to un- understand Islam and what we see today. Uh, there were two primary periods that Muhammad is said to have received this, the time that he was in Mecca, so this is known as the Meccan period, and uh, a lot of the verses, uh, passages in the Quran, that is considered the peaceful era. But he was driven out of Mecca and went to Medina, about 100 miles to the north of Mecca, and the verses that are in the Medinan period, those are the violent verses, including the verse of the sword, uh, which talks about killing infidels, and understanding which revelations were given later is the law of abrogation. So it's not just a matter of whether the Quran itself has been preserved, but there is no way of knowing for sure which are the older and and newer verses. So this gives groups like ISIS a foundation for being true to the Medinan period, the later revelation. So all this is very critical in understanding not only the history of Islam, but Islam in the world today. I think we need to look at some of the basic foundations of Islam in terms of what Muslims are expected to do and ultimately to believe. 
Well, there are five pillars of the faith which actually outline what uh, Muslims are expected to do. The first is the declaration of faith, the Shahada, which says that there is no God but Allah and, and Muhammad is his prophet. And so by doing that, that is actually how someone becomes becomes a Muslim. He simply uh, makes that declaration. In fact, according to some Islamic scholars, because I just said that, uh, I am now a Muslim. But I think we would I think we would both agree that's not the case. But there are other things, like things they must do, that is praying five times a day, fasting, giving alms, and then at least once in their lifetime perform the Hajj, which is the trip to Mecca in the first month of the Islamic calendar. And then there are six articles of faith, and I'm not going to go into all of them simply for the sake of time, but just to note that they would include things like uh, belief in Allah, belief in angels, belief in the prophets of uh, Allah, belief in the books of Allah, and belief in the, the ultimate decree of God, which results in ultimately fatalism. In reality, David, we've discussed Islam on this program in the past. I know that you've had to study even more so now uh, to present this presentation here at our School of Prophets. You've studied Islam for a number of years. But let me ask you this. As you have been digging deeper in your research for the course, was there anything that really struck you about Islam that you might not have been as aware of as you are right now? Yeah, and I I really brought this out in uh, one of the hours toward the end of the course on uh, Thursday, and that was so many touch points of correspondence between Islamic eschatology and biblical eschatology. It was clear that Muhammad and his followers must have had some knowledge of the Christian scriptures, and there were Christians in that area, and so there are a lot of touch points, and what I would suggest is that as has always happened in history, Satan is very much aware of the revelation of the God of the Bible and the prophecies that were made and the, and, uh, the scriptures, both the Hebrew scriptures and the, and the Christian scriptures in the New Testament. And I would say that he has taken those truths and he has introduced error so that there's a mixture of truth and error. And this is what causes some people to think that there's really not that much difference when there actually is, and there's significant differences in the eschatology, and we must be careful not to be deceived by what I would call satanic theology and superficial parallels. Well, here we are at that time at the end of our conversation, almost, but it's the time for that question and the look towards what God's Word has to say and what we know Bible prophecy calls for. For example, the Antichrist. I know one of the things that you discussed was the idea of that biblical Antichrist will come out of the Islamic world. Can you briefly explain what this is all about and what you think about that theory? Well, Joel Richardson is the primary proponent of that and has written several books on that idea. But I think based on several passages, particularly Daniel chapter 9, where it talks about the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary, and that's a reference to a prophecy that was fulfilled in 70 A.D. by the Romans, and the prince who is to come is the Antichrist. So I think the ethnic identity of the Antichrist has to be Roman. He cannot be coming out of the Islamic world. Another 
another thing that I think is uh, key is Ezekiel 38 and 39, where you have the war, and Richardson makes an exegetical error by identifying Gog of Magog as the Antichrist, when actually uh, this has to do with Russia and an Islamic coalition coming against the Antichrist, because the Antichrist is going to need to take down the Dome of the Rock to rebuild the Temple, and after he cuts this seven-year peace treaty to protect Israel from its enemies, I think they're going to realize what's happening, and this is what's going to precipitate the the war. So I think uh, we just need to be very careful in our exegesis and understanding of biblical prophecy. Well, that proves just once again, we always, when we have a conversation, focus on the fact, what does God's Word say about the issue that we are discussing? And that's our bottom line. God's Word is the absolute. Hey, it was a great time, and you did a great job in the 10 sessions on understanding Islam here at the conference. Appreciate it so much, David. I'm looking forward. Kind of just give us a little teaser about what's upcoming in December. Well, as you said, you're going to be doing your second in the three-part series on Prophecy Through the Bible, and I'm going to be doing something new, something I've done around the world, but new for the School of Prophets, and that's to offer a practical course that uh, pastors, church technicians, church secretaries can come to to help pastor take these things that he's learning in the School of Prophets and use them, and I'm going to be teaching a series of sessions on graphics and PowerPoint design to help pastors and teachers effectively communicate the Word of God. Oh, that is great. And folks, if you watched it on live streaming video or you were at the conference, you know that uh, the graphics David used in his course were just excellent. Great, great practical activity going to be taking place at our next School of Prophets. It's in December, 11, 12, and 13. Mark it down on your calendar. Hey, David, have a safe journey back home. Get a little bit of rest before you take off for someplace else in the world. And uh, we'll catch you next week and we'll have another conversation. Thanks, Jimmy. Always great to be with you in person and on the air. Thank you, sir. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, I am going to take a look at the book, pull all these thoughts that we've gotten from our broadcast partners together, and see what the Word of God has to say about it. That's all ahead, right here on Prophecy Today. Hey everyone, this is Dave James with the Alliance for Biblical Integrity. You hear me each week discussing current theological issues with Jimmy DeYoung on the Prophecy Today weekend broadcast. We founded the Alliance for Biblical Integrity because we saw a need for an apologetics and discernment ministry that would be an important resource for local churches, schools, and ministry organizations that face ever-changing theological challenges in today's world. I teach many different courses and seminars in the United States and around the world and can tailor the seminars for Sunday schools, Bible studies, and church services, and the courses for weekend conferences of 6 to 10 hours. For more information, you can go to the ABI website at biblicalintegrity.org. That's one word, biblicalintegrity.org, and click on Courses and Seminars on the main menu. You can also contact me personally through the contact page on the ABI website. I look forward to hearing from you. The book of Revelation is God's final word to man and the timeline of the last days revealed to the Christians. This symbolism-filled example of apocalyptic literature can be difficult to understand, especially when simply reading it from beginning to end. 
Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's latest book, Revelation, A Chronology, takes a walk through the prophetic book of Revelation in the order that the events will take place, chronologically, sharing insights into its true meaning and doing so in an easy-to-understand and practical way. If you have difficulty understanding the book of Revelation, get your copy of Revelation, A Chronology, and let Dr. Jimmy DeYoung aid you in your understanding of this profound end-times prophecy book that God has preserved in His Scriptures for Christians in the last days. To order your copy of Jimmy DeYoung's Revelation, A Chronology, call us toll-free at 877-674-3298 or visit our website at prophecytoday.com. It's time right now here on Prophecy Today for us to take a look at the book. We've been eavesdropping on the conversation with our broadcast partners. You've been able to hear what they've had to say as I would ask them information about a current event that we are reporting and getting their insight, some of them on the ground where all of these things are unfolding. These are great reports. They're key for your understanding of Bible prophecy, that end-time scenario that is unfolding as these current events come into place, setting the stage for these prophecies to be fulfilled. You'll notice that I have some very knowledgeable broadcast partners. We need to understand all of these reports. And by the way, if you happen to miss any of the reports on today's broadcast, you can go to my website, prophecytoday.com. There you'll be able to re-listen or listen for the first time to any of these reports. That's prophecytoday.com. At that location, go to PTRN, Prophecy Today Radio Network. Now, next week, we'll replace them with who I talk with next week. So you have one week. You can tell a friend they need to eavesdrop on these conversations. They need to understand uh, what guys on the ground, what very knowledgeable men can bring to the table in giving us insight in what is happening. And again, that location, prophecytoday.com. Go to PTRN, Prophecy Today Radio Network. Now I am going to give each and every one of you listening to this broadcast today a prophetic perspective on the news. Go to Ken Timmerman first. The North Korean summit is back on track The President of the United States and the leader of North Korea will be meeting in Singapore on June the 12th, as was the original time set and the location for this summit to take place. It's back on track. He's still waiting to see if it's really going to happen. We will see is what he said, and I agree that is probably the case. But I want to remind you that the North Korean people are actually, that nation is in Bible prophecy. They would be a part of the kings of the east that will make their way across the Euphrates River on their way into Jerusalem at the end of the seven-year tribulation period. By that time, in that seven-year tribulation, half of the earth's population is going to be dead laying in the streets of the world. But the other half will be found 
in the Far East. We're talking about China, India. We're talking about, and by the way, those are the two largest nations in the world. We're talking about Japan, North Korea, South Korea. We're talking about these Far Eastern nations that will come according to Revelation chapter 16 and verse 12. The river Euphrates drying up, making way for the kings of the east to come into Jerusalem. They'll be the ones, according to Zechariah chapter 14, verse 2, when the nations of the world, they'll be the only ones left at that time, at the end of the seven-year tribulation period, that will gather in Jerusalem under the leadership of Satan to try to stop the return of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. David Dolan gave us, of course, his Middle East news update. He is key. The Middle East, probably the key region as it relates to Bible prophecy. And he was talking about the Palestinian attack from Hamas and Islamic Jihad out of the Gaza Strip. They have fired over 100 mortars and rockets into Israel. Now, when you look at the Palestinians and what they want to do, wipe Israel off the face of the earth, when you stop for a moment and think about the campaign, the seven-week campaign that has just completed with Nakba Day, when they had 60 Palestinian terrorists killed trying to cross the border into Israel there in the Gaza Strip. And when you think about the book of Malachi, You see, that project, that campaign from the Palestinians to try to return to their home, it was the march of return. Well, the Bible tells us in Malachi chapter 1, these people, the Palestinian people, it says they will return. They brag about it. They will return and will rebuild. The Lord says there in Malachi chapter 1, you'll return and rebuild, but I'll call your borders the borders of wickedness. That's what we got. By the way, the word Gaza is used 18 times in the Old Testament, and Jewish people have been there for a long time. And that's what we talked about with Winky Madad as we went to him to find out about the possibility of the Israeli government going into Gaza and taking it back. You know, the Hamas was given the Gaza Strip. The Israelis are trying to placate them with a state of their own, the Gaza Strip. That's not worked out. Uh, But Gaza is key, not only to the Israeli people, but for the future, for the activities in God's prophetic plan. Winky Madad talked with us about that. Itamar Marcus, he is the director of Palestinian Media Watch. He covers the electronic and print media for the Palestinians. Well, they're involved in putting this whole thing together. It says in the book of Ezekiel 35 that they will go into the land of Israel, the Palestinian people, kill the Jews, and then steal their land. That's exactly the agenda for Hamas and Islamic Jihad, as Itamar informed us. John Rood covered the European Union for us. Do you hear that phrase he said when he's in conversation with me? The cracking in the ten toes of iron and clay. You know, that's from the scriptures. The book of Daniel, chapter 2 Those ten horns in chapter 7 are the same as the ten toes in Daniel chapter 2. They're both referring to the revival of the Roman Empire, which I would have to say the European Union is at least the infrastructure for that revived Roman Empire. And everything they're doing, even our journalists, our broadcast partners, recognize what's happening as they give us the political activities. It's always setting the stage for the prophetic to be fulfilled. 
very informative conversation with David James. He just has taught at our School of Prophets here this last week, Understanding Islam. We went through that. It was great information. You might want to re-listen to it, get all the information, the knowledge you can, but understand Ezekiel 38, Psalm 83, Daniel chapter 11. That's the alignment of nations to come against the Jewish state of Israel in the last days. And may I say this to you, the lowest common denominator in all of those nations to attack Israel. They are Islamic. We had better understand Islam. Now, here's one other thing I want you to understand. Every single prophecy that we have just mentioned will happen after the rapture of the church during the seven-year tribulation period. With that in mind, we have to recognize the urgency of the moment. The next event on God's calendar of activities is the rapture of the church. That rapture could happen at any moment. Having made that statement, nothing left for me to say, except let's keep looking up until... Thank you so much for joining us today. This is Jay Johnson inviting you to join us again next week for more of Prophecy Today.